many of us probably feel a level of anxiety and distress as we look uh, about the, the world around us right now, as we think about the current trends of our culture and our state and our society, we feel unsettled. Maybe we fear for the future of religious liberty, or we fear the sort of country that our kids will end up growing up in. We fear, fear what our faith may cost us. We fear what it may be like as our society grows increasingly hostile to what we believe and what we stand for. And we notice that the trends of society towards this increasingly anti-God sort of secularism feel all but unstoppable at this point. Or maybe you're one here today who, on the other hand, um, maybe even with a mix of these feelings, you, you come in today and you see the trends of our society and you find them in some ways to be persuasive or attractive even. Maybe you see the unprecedented luxury and the global economy that we live in and you're attracted to the, the wealth and the consumerism of our society. Or maybe you see our society's um, increasing journey into the sexual revolution and you, and you look at that and it looks liberating, it looks freeing, less restrictive. You see our culture's... Um, the mores of acceptance and, and this, this, these new ideas of tolerance, and it looks like that's just an easier past. That just looks nicer. It's the path of less resistance. Or maybe it, even from a philosophical standpoint, it maybe feels even more enlightened to just kind of be accepting of all viewpoints. Whatever the case is, we are, the situation with our culture is, is quite a pressing one that many of us come in today feeling that weight either the unsettledness of it or the temptation towards it. Well, by the time that John was writing the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire had already been around for 600 years. And there would still be another 400 years before the empire eventually fell. That means that the Roman Empire lasted four times longer than the British Empire, the Communist Empire, and the American Empire combined. Rome was actually known as, the nickname was Eternal Rome. Never able to fall, it would last forever, so it seemed. In fact, archaeologists have found graffiti in Ephesus, one of the cities to which John writes, uh, a graffiti that said, Rome, your power will never end. And the emergence of the emperor cult in which emperors were thought of as gods uh, made clearer Rome's uh, claim for itself of absolute sovereignty, that the empire, in a, in a sense, was itself God. And so as John writes, this, this might and this glory of the empire certainly looms over the churches and presses in on them. And you can imagine being one of the earlier followers of Jesus during this time, that Jesus has supposedly ascended into heaven, and you don't see him in person uh, working and acting anymore. He's supposedly reigning from heaven. He supposedly, as he said in Matthew 28, has all authority in heaven and on earth now. 
But if we can be honest, it might not always seem so. His churches are a relatively small collective of ragtag individuals without much social influence. In fact, a lot of the churches are struggling to stay faithful and stay on track, as we'll see. And others who are staying on track are therefore facing outright persecution. If anything, it seems like Rome is the functional lord of the universe. So during this time between the first and second comings of Christ, is God just inactive? Are we just left to fend for ourselves? What is God's purposes now? Are we Christians just sticking our head in the sand, claiming that Jesus is Lord, rather than acknowledging what's obvious, that Rome is the Lord? As we come to Revelation, Revelation is a book that seeks to peel back the curtain, as we have titled it, Reality Unveiled, this unveiling, this peeling back the curtain beyond what sometimes is just what we see with our eyes, just appearances sake, to show us what is actually going on. So let's begin our section today, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1, by first looking at the form of the revelation, the form in which the revelation is given to us. Let's read verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. One of the first words we have, even in our English translations, is this word revelation. This word that that means exactly how it's translated, to reveal. It is a word that meant to disclose, or as we've titled it here, this unveiling. It, was a, it, was, it conjures up a type of literature that existed during that time, the apocalyptic literature, an unveiling. Uh, when, my, when my grandmother was still alive and we went to her house, uh, she had this sort of uh, kitchen built into a dining room. And at the edge of the dining room, you had this set of table, or this table, with a set of windows that kind of curled around. And she had, I feel like there's a fancier name for this, but all I can think of is vertical blinds. You know what I mean by those? They're these long, like, kind of thick blinds that go from the ceiling to the, to the floor. And so um, what you would do, though, is if these vertical blinds were closed, you can't see anything outside outside into her backyard, right? But if, if you were able to kind of scoot to the side a bit, you'd then be able to see through the gaps in the blind and see into the backyard. And you should think of Revelation as something like these vertical blinds. We live life and we see these blinds. What we see are just the white blinds sticking down. We see life as, as we can see with our own eyes. We see society as it is. We see our circumstances as it is. And what John is doing is he's, he's causing us to be able to see through the blinds to what lies behind them. 
That's what apocalyptic literature is. It's this unveiling. It's being able to see through reality as we see it into what is really real. You might think of it this way, that that the, the role of apocalyptic literature was to expand our understanding of reality to expand our our view of the horizon, both both vertically in terms of the perspective that heaven would would, uh, shine on our situation. So we see throughout the book that heaven is opened, and so we get a heavenly uh, view of, of reality. Okay, but also it's not only to expand our our perspective vertically, but also horizontally in light of the end of history. Let's take where we know history is going and let that illuminate how we understand things even now. Both in light of heaven then and in light of the the end of the world, where it is heading and its destiny. And he uses this, this word that in the ESV in most translations it says he made it known at the Second half of verse 1 there. He made it known. In the King James, it actually translates this word signify, which is what the word means. It's a, it's a, it has the same root of in John when he talks about in his gospel, the signs. Things that are made known by signs. Or as he says even here in this little prologue, he talks about in verse 1, the, the things that God gave to show, to show his servants. This is a visual sort of thing. Or in verse 2, he bore witness to all that he saw. John is is having a vision here. This is a visual medium. And he's making it known by signs. Made known. He's signifying it. Apocalyptic literature, one of the things it does is it employs vivid imagery in order to communicate a truer portrait of reality. Okay, so some of you... Uh, may see, and I'm forgetting the name of the show, um, the, the show that has the upside down in it, uh, Stranger Things, that's it. If some of you have seen Stranger Things, one of the things in the, in the show Stranger Things, it's a Netflix show, is that it's, it's, this, it's like a 1980s scenario, and, and the, the folks, they kind of live with this alternate reality among them. Okay, so there's, they're able to, at times, kind of break the gap and enter into this alternate world that overlaps with theirs called the Upside Down. Okay? Everything is, is very dark and kind of creepy there, and there's monsters and all this stuff. But the idea is it's, it's not like a world that's separate from theirs. It's not like they enter a portal and get zapped into a, a universe over there. It's actually a universe that overlaps with theirs. They, it coexists with theirs. Okay? Or, or, or Dan gave the illustration of uh, virtual reality, I think it was two weeks ago or a week ago. It would be like a virtual reality, instead of, except instead of when you put the goggles on, you see a world that's different than yours. It would almost be like it adds a layer on top of the, the real world. It, it, it's, it, John, in other words, if we think about John giving us a vision of the upside down, or virtual reality, except it's actually real reality. He's, he's, he's giving us these vivid pictures, these signs, these symbols that communicate to us what is actually going on in our real world, revealing what is actually at stake. And so we enter into the upside down, so to say, as we go into the book of Revelation. We see things as they really are. They're exposed for what they are. And one of the greatest themes of the book of Revelation is that things are not as they appear. In fact, things are oftentimes the very opposite than as they appear. 
is one commentator, uh, Dennis Johnson, he says this. He says, one of the key themes of the book is that things are not what they seem. The church in Smyrna appears poor but is rich, and it is opposed by those who claim to be Jews but are actually Satan's synagogue. Sardis has a reputation for life but is dead. Laodicea thinks itself rich and self-sufficient, but this church is destitute and naked. The beast seems invincible, able to conquer the saints by slaying them. Their faithfulness even to death, however, proves to be their victory over the dragon that empowered the beast. What appears to the naked eye on the plane of history to be weak, helpless, hunted, poor, defeated congregations of Jesus' faithful servants prove to be true overcomers who participate in the triumph of the lion who conquered as a slain lamb. What appear to be invincible forces controlling history, military, political, religious, economic complex that is Rome and its less lustrous successors, is a system sown with the seeds of its own self-destruction, already feeling the first lashes of the wrath of the Lamb. On the plane of visible history, things are not what they appear. So Revelation's symbols make things appear as they are. It's surprising Paradoxical imagery discloses the true identity of the church, its, em- its enemies, and its champion. Paradox is central to the symbolism. Not only are things not what they appear to be in history, but also typically their true identities are portrayed in the visions, as portrayed in the visions, are opposite of their appearance in the world. Things are actually flipped on their heads. One of the greatest examples of this, as as the quote gave, was the picture of the lion, the strong military power, who conquers how? By being defeated. By dying. And so believers conquer by actually being faithful to death. And we need this message of revelation that flips things on its head, that gives us an upside-down view of reality, so to say. We need this. Why? Because our imaginations are often captive to influence by false competing views of reality. One of my professors in seminary, I believe he said uh, that the greatest danger, I think he said, to the church was that our imaginations have been colonized by competing views of reality. We need proper theological visions of reality that, that come in and they wash away the false views of the world that we have. And that's one of the things that the scripture does by giving us different genres of scripture. We get, we get narrative that tells a story that captures us with the, the stories of Scripture. We get epistles that give us instruction, that speak directly to us, tell us doctrine, tell us instruction. Another genre we get here is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic gives us vivid imageries because we are people who live with imaginations. Not imaginations in the sense of make-believe things, but we live with, with a view of the world that's animated by certain convictions, by certain impulses. And we need to come to the book of Revelation and over and over and over hear more and more of these, of these actually true portraits of reality so that we can almost like have a bath and let our mind get washed away with all the false junk that we think. So that our, it's not so much that we take the book of Revelation and think how do I apply it to myself, 
but more like how do I get myself applied into the world of Revelation? How do I get my mind more into the very the way Revelation sees reality? That's one of the things that apocalyptic literature is trying to do. That's one of the things that Revelation is trying to do is to just, it, I mean, it's a long book, right? To just try to get you into the text so that over the course of the entire book, your mind is just captivated by this view of reality. Beasts, a Christ reigning. And he says that these are the things that must soon take place in verse 1. Soon take place, or in verse 3, for the time is near. In other words, this is not some, the book of Revelation is not talking about some things that are in some very distant future time period. There are, there are very popular views of Revelation um, known as dispensationalism or a futurist view of Revelation, which would say that this is all kind of waiting for a final seven-year tribulation at the end of history, after the church sort of gets raptured and removed and taken away from the realities of the book. This, this, this verse alone undercuts that view, because what does it say? It says, these things are about to take place. This is for us, in other words. This is for the church, for the original churches that he wrote to, and for all of us who subsequently follow in their footsteps. In fact, to, to argue that view that somehow the church is removed from these realities goes against the very purpose of the book, where, where John is preparing the church in chapters 2 and 3 to experience the realities of the rest of the book. He's preparing them to go through these things. That's the whole point. And the realities of chapter 4 and following are meant to fuel their responses in chapters 2 and 3. The reality of reality unveiled in chapter 4 through 22 is meant to fuel the response of patient endurance in chapters 2 and 3. And so again, these things are about to take place. There's an urgency. There's a relevance for us. We are immediately ready and set and postured to say, okay, how does this message apply to me, to us? And this, this phrase, this phrase of the, the, the things that must soon take place, is actually an allusion to Daniel 2. Daniel 2. Where Daniel 2, in the Greek Septuagint version at least, it says uh, that it talks about making known the things that must take place in the latter days, or during the last days. And if you're familiar with Daniel 2, chapter 2 of Daniel is the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar has the vision of this great statue with the four kingdoms represented by different types of metal and such. Right? And what happens to that great statue representing the kingdoms of man, the kingdoms of this earth? An uncut stone comes and it crushes the statue. And out of that uncut stone rises a mountain, which is the very kingdom of God. As Revelation eleven fifteen says, the kingdom of the kingdoms of men have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And that is what Daniel 2 is picturing here. The arrival of God's kingdom crushing the kingdoms of this world. And as later we get in, the, in chapter 7 of Daniel, which is alluded to in verse 7 of our passage here, so Daniel 7, it also talks about how the arrival of God's kingdom will be associated with a time of tribulation. The book of Daniel, Daniel talks about these beasts, just as da uh, Revelation eventually picks up the image of these beasts from Daniel. In other words, the, 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 the program of Daniel in many ways sets the program and the subject matter for the book of Revelation. Not only at the beginning of the book of Revelation, here in the first verses, verse 1, does he make an allusion to Daniel, 
But then at the very end of the book, in chapter 22.6, he uses the same language again. As if to say, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Daniel was talking about in chapter 2. The arrival of God's kingdom, crushing the kingdoms of this world, and the tribulation and the beasts that are associated with the arrival, that conflict between the kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of God. And you notice Daniel, or John, deliberately changes the words, though. Whereas, whereas for Daniel, it was the end of days. These things were to comment during the last days, the things that will come at the last days. John deliberately changes those latter days to what? What must soon take place. John is saying that, that, that what to, for Daniel was the stuff of the latter days, John is saying that those latter days are now. As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's breaking in. We are in the last days, as Acts 2 says. And so the reality of Daniel, the arrival of the kingdom is happening now. That's what this whole book is about. It's about the arrival of God's kingdom in the person of Christ. And so now as we move to verses 4 and following, we've looked at the form of the revelation. Now let's look at the content of the revelation. And here we get a greeting, a doxology, and then a closing pronouncement or promise. A greeting, a doxology, and a closing promise or pronouncement. And what you'll find is that this section here, verses 4 through 8, is reflective of that very message we've already discussed. It's reflective of this message about the revelation of Christ's coming kingdom. Both the beginning of the section, verse 4, and the end, verse 8, close with the same discussion about the coming, uses that language, the coming of our God. Verses 4 and 5, read with me. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. As we get ready to go into the book and you think about the, just what you might be familiar from this book, the, the contents of this book, you've got dragons trying to eat a child, you've got beasts with crazy horns and all this crazy stuff, earthquake happening, you know, pestilence and famine. It's an intimidating book. There's, I understand why a lot of people read the book and they're scared of it. You might think, how are we ever, how are we ever going to get through that? How are we going to face these realities and the need to persevere through all that? Not only these external threats, but even my own internal heart. How, am I, how are we going to manage? The book begins in verse 4 here by saying, the very God of the universe greets you with his grace and his peace. The God of the universe, we have, the, we have, the, we have Father here, we have the, the Spirit who's depicted as a sevenfold spirit, the spirit in his fullness, in other words, seven being symbolic for fullness, the Father, the Spirit, and then Jesus Christ. Like, get that. Don't, 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 don't miss the fact that the God of the universe, who is in control of all of these things, says, I am for you with my grace and my peace, my grace that is undeserved to you, that establishes my peace between myself and you in the blood of Christ. I am for you. 
My grace and my peace will be with you throughout this whole book. And then we get this description of Christ. As we've had the description of Father, Son, our Spirit, I want you to look specifically at the description of Christ here, where it says he is a faithful witness. That the revelation that he's giving to us in this book, we can take to the bank. It's true. Despite what, what, around, what around us might claim to the contrary and say, no, that's not true. This is, the world is, this is how things really are. Rome is really in control. The way our society is going, that's really how things ought to be. Christ says, no, my faithful witness, it is true. And his witness then becomes a model for our own witness. As we continue to witness to Christ, we look to his model as the empowerment for ours. He's also said to be the, the firstborn of the dead. In other words, he's the one who raised from the dead. He has power over death. He leads the rest of the dead. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. And think why that would have been important reading this for those first readers. No matter what they face, no matter what persecution they face, even the, the, the worst that can be dealt to them, death itself is in Christ's hands. He's the firstborn of the dead. He has authority over death. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. As we think about the kings, that, as we get into the rest of the book, these are the kings that will be rebelling against God. As Psalm 2 talks about the, the nations raging. Jesus says, I am the ruler over those kings. Any of those kings, any of these, these powers that you face, the Roman Empire, any of those that seem to have supreme control, they do not. I control them, Christ says. Any power that comes against the church, Christ says, I have control over it. He talks about being the ruler here, which, which raises this subject of Christ's kingdom, as we talked about before. I'm the ruler of the kings on earth, which leads us into our, our next verses, which talk about the present form of that kingdom. The present form of that kingdom. In verse 5 continuing, we get this doxology talking about Christ. Well, to him... To this Christ who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Praise be Christ who in fact reigns over his kingdom. He is, he is first of all said to be one who loves us. This, this Christ who is ruler over death, who has power over death, who rules over all the kings of this earth, that very Christ who has all authority, he says he loves you. He has set his affections on you. He has intentions to save you to the uttermost. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can stop his purposes to save you. And what are those purposes? We see them here. That he would free us, literally to redeem us, to buy us out of the slavery of our sin by his blood, his death on the cross, and to make us a kingdom, he says. It's very reflective of what we know of God's redemption even in the Exodus, right? When God redeems the people out of their slavery, same sort of language, redeems them out of their slavery in Egypt, he redeems them out of slavery to do what? To make them into his people. To bring them to the mountain that they might know him and that they may, might worship him in order that he might give them their law, in order that they might, they might obey him. 
be his people, reflect his character to the nations, eventually lead them into the land, and that they would ultimately be his kingdom. That's the pattern of God's redemption. He saves not just to save us from things, but to save us to things, to save us to a vocation, to save us to a calling. And it makes sense that this would be reflective of the Exodus. Why? Because this language of being made a kingdom of priests comes from Exodus 19, in which God told the Israelites that you are to be, if you obey me, you are to be a kingdom of priests. And John is saying here that this is exactly what Christ has now fulfilled in the church, that we are presently Christ's kingdom of priests. Well, what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, a couple, a couple thoughts here that I think make sense in light of the whole book is that we have access to God. As, as Revelation, we'll talk about the theme of the church as the, as the true temple, we have access to God now as his priests. We go into the holy place. We offer then worship as a priest would offer worship to God. We offer worship and acceptable sacrifices. And as the nation of Israel was meant to be a witness to the nations around them, so the church as the kingdom of priests is now a witness to the nations. We are a missionary people that is a part of our identity to hold out this testimony to Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that this kingdom, which is even already here presently, is guaranteed to be brought to completion, as verse 6 says, to him, to Christ, be dominion forever and ever. Which points us beyond not only the present form of the kingdom, but also the final future consummation of that kingdom. And so read with me in verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Here we get an allusion to two Old Testament passages kind of brought together. The first is Daniel 7. As I said, that would be another passage that would be alluded to. Again, from Daniel, talking about the arrival of God's kingdom. And in this case, in Daniel 7, this language of coming with the clouds in Daniel 7, refers to the Son of Man figure who comes on the clouds to receive the kingdom from the Ancient of Days. And of course, what John is claiming is that Christ has in fact done that. Jesus is the Son of Man who has received the kingdom from the Father and will come literally to earth to manifest that kingdom fully one day. The second allusion is to Zechariah 12. And, and, and either, either the idea here is that those who are wailing, those who pierced him are wailing at his coming, it's either this idea that they wail in, in the light of the fact that he's coming to judge them. It's a wailing of, of, of anguish. But in the original uh, context of Zechariah 12, the wailing in that passage was actually a wailing of repentance. God actually says, I'm going to pour my, my grace out on you to cause you to repent. And the wailing in Zechariah 12 is the wailing of Israel as their Messiah arrives and as they repent, as they believe on the Lord. And so it could actually be here that John, rather than talking about a wailing of judgment, is actually saying, no, this is the wailing of the nations as they actually come in repentance Actually, actually, as they actually believe on Christ. And, and John is taking what was originally a prophecy for Israel, but notice he's saying it's, it's universalized. It's, it's all the tribes of the earth. It's the nations coming and trusting 
in Christ. And we get in verse 8 then as as well, uh, falling on the heels of this, where, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the, basically like the A to Z of the Greek alphabet. And so it, it's, like, it's like God himself here is saying, I am the A to Z. Or elsewhere, as the book says, I am the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, I'm the one who is in control of history from the very beginning, from its creation, from A And I am the one who controls the destiny of history, Z. I control the end. And therefore, I control the beginning and the end and everything in between. All of it is within my control. He goes on to say that he's the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, what we might expect to hear is is something more like this. The one who is, who was, and who will be. That's what you might expect. Use the same verb, right? Who, who was or who is, who was and who will be. But what does he say? He changes the verb deliberately to the one who is to come. In other words, this is more than a statement about God's simple eternal existence. That he's always been and will always exist. Of course it is that, but it's more than that. It's about his constant sovereignty. His constant rule, that there is never a time when God has not existed as the absolute sovereign of the universe, both in the past, who was, but now in the present, who is. That means that no matter what we face now, whatever we face in this life, whatever we face as as these visions unfold, God says, I am the God who is. I am presently in control. I am presently reigning. But then also, he's the God who will come. When God decisively intervenes in history with the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom and judge all those who remain in rebellion to him. And all of these realities, as we get into the book of Revelation and it unfolds for us the coming of Christ's kingdom, they are all rooted in the gospel. This is made abundantly clear in chapter 5, where we, as we sang about even already this morning, where we get this vision of, of John, of, John um, of hearing about a lion from the tribe of Judah, this, this coming king who is able to uh, open the scroll, the scroll that uh, signifies control over history's destiny and its course. And John sees what he hears as a lion, but what he sees as a, as a lamb as if it had been slain. The way that God has achieved this, 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 uh, the destiny of, of, of where history is going, of achieving his kingdom, is actually through the very cross of Christ. By actually reconciling sinners to himself. By taking those who deserved the wrath, of, as, as we see all throughout this book, the wrath of God's enemies, but making us what? Into a kingdom of priests into those that he greets with his grace, undeserved salvation. We don't earn it. With his grace that establishes his peace. He's bought us by his blood, by his very death on the cross. He bears our sins 
in order to make us a kingdom. And the whole book of Revelation then is just expositions and unfolding of the reality and the ramifications of the gospel. The gospel that, that, that in which we see the Lord of the universe judging his enemies and saving his people. The whole book is absolutely gospel from beginning to end. And what do we do with this message? As you look at me with uh, verse 3, we've looked at the form of the revelation, we've looked at the content of the revelation, and now we look at the response to the revelation. He said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, the one who would read these things in the church. And blessed are those who hear, but not only hear, not only read it, not only hear it, but who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He calls it a prophecy. And when we think of the word prophecy, oftentimes we think of someone who's telling the future. But more accurately, prophecy is not just foretelling, but it would be forthtelling. It's someone who is actually uh, what sometimes is called a covenant enforcer. The goal of prophecy is not ultimately to just kind of give us information about the future that we find interesting. So like the book of Revelation being a code book to figure out where history is going. That's not the point. Prophecy is intended to impact us here and now. Its ultimate goal is not future speculation. Trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Its ultimate goal is ethical, obedient response. Revelation is not just focused about the future, it's focused about right now. And as he says, it's a message that is intended to be kept. Now, I don't know if that's the normal way that we think about the book of Revelation, to keep its message. Like, how does one keep a book like this? How do you keep a book that's full of symbols and images? What does it mean to keep scenes of dragons and beasts? Well, as we've said in our sermon title, the reality unveiled, these symbols, are meant to fuel our patient endurance. That's why we've titled it the way we have. Reality unveiled is what's happening in the book of Revelation, and how we keep it is by responding with what we've made the subtitle, empowered for patient endurance. We respond to these scenes by responding to them with, an, in, in, with empowered, patient endurance. And so, again, the book is not intended just for our speculation and our interest, but actual obedient response. As one commentator says, he says, if we could explain every phrase, identify every allusion to Old Testament scripture or Greco-Roman society, trace every interconnection and illumine every mystery in this book, and yet we're silenced by the intimidation of public opinion, terrorized by the prospect of suffering, enticed by affluent Western culture's promise of security, comfort, and pleasure, then we would not have begun to understand the book of Revelation as God wants us to. John's point here is to say, blessed are those who respond to this message of Christ's coming kingdom with patient endurance. Blessed are you when you respond to this disclosure, this unveiling of Christ's coming kingdom as we respond to it with patient endurance, as we keep it. And so we focused a lot here today on the actual content of the revelation as what John is doing here at the outset. We'll get into the next chapter. We'll get more into the nature of that response. 
it's good to sit just in the theology of it, that it would actually fuel us and stir our hearts towards that. But it's still worth asking here at the outset. We want our minds, we want our imaginations, our perspectives on reality, reality to be gripped and shaped by the portraits of this book so that we would respond the way we are. And so the question I think we should ask at the outset, maybe something you can discuss over lunch or as you go on with the rest of your week, would be this. What would it look like if I lived with a greater sense of Christ's absolute sovereignty over history and its destiny? What would it look like if I lived with a greater conviction of Christ's inbreaking kingdom that puts all other kingdoms of this world on notice? I think we would rest more. I think we would rest knowing that God is in control. We wouldn't be intimidated by the prospect of whatever comes our way because we know that God is over anything that would threaten us. I think it would allow us to escape temptations to feel desperate. And with, with, with desperate circumstances come desperate measures to feel like we have to maybe like win a culture war at all cost. Because we have a posture of confidence. We don't have to compromise. We can stay faithful in our calling. It would cause us to prioritize the church's mission in our life. I'd be gripped by the missionary role of the church during this inner Advent age before the coming of Christ. I would more confidently and eagerly give testimony to Jesus, the reigning and coming king, because I'm convinced and I'm gripped by its reality. I would see through the false claims of this world for what they are, lies that will eventually be exposed and brought to an end. I would resist the allure of sin and idolatry as dangerous temptations in light of the coming of Christ. I would live sacrificially and wholeheartedly knowing that all of it is worth it. And I would be empowered to persevere in my faith, even to endure persecution if necessary. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, as the musicians come forward, the Lord's Supper, of course, is a, as I like to say, it's a pictured promise. It's a, it's a symbol of Christ's death on our behalf. The bread symbolizing his body and the juice, his blood. But even as we said, the book of Revelation, I am convinced, the more and more I read it, I'm convinced that the book of Revelation is simply expositions on the impact the gospel has over the course of history. The, the victory of the gospel of redeeming a people for himself and ultimately redeeming creation. Christ taking the very role of the Lord of the universe through what he, what he has done on the cross and ascended to the very right hand of God. That means that the Lord's Supper is also a token and a promise of Christ's coming kingdom. Not only do we see the Lord's Supper as something where we look back to the cross and what Christ has won for us in, in, in pain for our sin, which of course we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper then, if, 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 if salvation was decisively won then, the Lord's Supper is also a token to look forward to the promise that awaits us, to what the book of Revelation unfolds for us, 
And Jesus himself hinted at that when he says, I will not drink of the vine until I am with you in the kingdom. And again, the the book of Revelation, what? It closes with the marriage supper of the land. You might think of what we do today with the Lord's Supper as a a sampling, as as an appetizer to the ultimate messianic banquet that awaits for us when Christ comes again. And so my encouragement for you this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, let our hearts be warmed with, with gratitude to Christ for the salvation that he has won for us. And let us also then ask, how can I be increasingly shaped by that reality? How can I live more gripped, more convinced, my my imagination more captivated by the realities of this book of the coming of Christ's kingdom?